can I ask you a couple of questions? Um, who's frightened of dying? Yeah, quite a lot of hands, that's fair enough. Who's frightened of the person they love dying? Yeah, more hands, uh, audible reinforcement of noises, everybody knows what I mean. Another question, and I promise you, I'm asking this utterly without judgment, I just want to know, who prays regularly? Yeah, a few hands, and um, this is the, qu the question, if something horrible happened to someone you love tonight, do you think, even if you don't pray, you might give it a go? Yes, right. This is very good because we are kindred souls. Because what I want to tell you about is I want to tell you about the night I prayed. Um, I am, well actually I used to describe myself as an atheist, whereas these days I'm going for the uh, slightly different hopeful agnostic. <laughs> <laughs> but to tell you about the night I prayed, you need to come with me to Yorkshire in 1990 and to Leeds General Infirmary. And... The person I'm praying for is my brother, Matty, and this is him on the front of my book. Um, me there as well. We're about seven and eight in this picture. On this night in 1990, Matty had been knocked over by a car about two miles away from where we lived in our parents' pub in Yorkshire. I wasn't there when he was knocked over, but I was there shortly afterwards because the car behind stopped then phoned an ambulance, then came to the pub. And they came round to the back of the pub. There was a car park, and they started making noise in the car park. And I didn't think that was a sinister thing, because people were always turning up drunk at the pub. And I opened my window, and the driver said, does Matthew Minton live here? And I said, yes, I'm his sister. And he said, you better come then, he's in trouble. And I've thought about this so much over the years. He's in trouble. It kind of just sounds a bit little, doesn't it? So I didn't go and wake my parents up. I just thought this would be the sort of thing that I could fix. Because I tell you, I was great. I was 17, and I was always bailing my brother Matthew, who was 16. He was 13 months younger than me and nine inches taller than me. Whip-smart, funny, clever, but quite often, I've, you know, I felt like I was the one who really had it going on, you know. I was often bailing him out of little scrapes, and I thought I was going to go and do that for him again. As soon as I got there, as soon as I was in the road with him, and he was unconscious, he was lying in the road, it was dark, there was no street light, there were girls crying everywhere. Lots of men had made barriers of themselves to flag down any cars coming. And I knelt next to, his, to him in the road, he was alive, and I put my fingers on his wrist so I could feel his pulse. And as soon as I got there, I knew that this was beyond my capability to fix this. This wasn't something I could sort out. I felt really bad I hadn't woken up my parents. And when the ambulance men came, I could see from their demeanour that this was really serious. I could see from the way they were with each other. I got in the ambulance with him and they kept giving me little jobs to do. But I could hear them talking to each other. I knew this was a serious thing. We went to Pontifact Hospital where they resuscitated him and intubated him. And then, and I called my parents from there who came. And then we went to Leeds General Infirmary and they got a surgeon to come and operate on his brain. 
We sat in this little room in Leeds General Infirmary for what seemed like hours. This kind of amuses me to remember because I'd never smoked in front of my parents before. So I was 17 and we got on really well, but it was like just that thing when you're 17, you probably don't smoke in front of your parents, and I never had. And yet, of course, I sat and smoked cigarette after cigarette in front of my parents because nothing mattered anymore. And then at some point, the surgeon came to talk to us and he said to my dad, I've saved your son's life, but we don't know yet whether that was the right thing to do. But of course, at that time, we all thought that was the right thing to do. He told us that the first 48 hours would be crucial, that they, would, they had purposefully um, given Matty drugs so that he wouldn't do anything. They just wanted his body to rest. And so the next night, I stayed at the hospital, and um, it was that night I sat beside Matty's bed. It was that night I went um, on my way to the relative's room. I went into this little chapel... And I sat in the chapel and I prayed. And despite not believing in God, I'd been to the Catholic school just because it was the one in our village. And I knew all, so I knew prayers. I knew the prayers. And I just kept saying prayers. And what I really wanted, all I prayed for was that my brother didn't die. Because then I saw life and death in a very binary way. And I thought it was a case of the one or the other. And really, the difference now, the difference between that girl then and me now, is that I now know there are many and various fates worse than death. But of course, we didn't know that then. So Matty didn't die. And you know, every time I went to sleep, every time I went to sleep in the first few days, I would wake up and I would think it'd all been a dream. There'd be this moment where I'd think, oh, it was just a dream. And then gradually it would crash over me again. And I'd realise it wasn't a dream. And then I'd be filled with this new fear that maybe he would have died in the time I'd been asleep. And then I'd go hurrying, hurrying back onto the ward or hurrying through the streets or hurrying downstairs in the pursuit of knowing whether or not he was still alive. But time went on and he didn't die, but nor did he ever really make anything like a recovery. His eyes started to open very slowly. When I um, wrote this book about it, the bit I still find hardest to think about, write about, talk about, is tracking how that next bit worked. The erosion from hope to despair because we did all sorts of things, as I'm sure you would. I'm sure all you people, knowing that the worst thing that could happen to you would be to something to happen to the person you love most, all you people, that all, the, all of you, that, that would drive you to prayer, you all know that all you would want would be that person to live. And we clung on to that and to that feeling for years. Henry Marsh is a neurosurgeon. He's written a book called Do No Harm. And I read this last year after I'd finished my own book. And I remember thinking, if only I'd read this book a bit sooner. Because he says it's all in the question. He says, if you say to someone in the hospital, in the intensive care room, if you say to someone, do you love this person enough to look after them in a terrible condition, 
then most of us would say yes. If you say to them, would this person like to be alive like this? Then straight away, that's an entirely different question. What I really see now is we didn't ask ourselves that question for about five years. For about five years, we thought that if we loved Matty enough, some sort of miracle would happen that would somehow vanish away his terrible, catastrophic brain damage. Aided in that, of course, by popular culture and novels, which paint a coma or a prolonged disorder of consciousness as something rather exciting and romantic. It's a fictional device, a bit like Sleeping Beauty. Um, and, of course, nobody ever... Sleeping Beauty goes to sleep for 100 years, and nobody ever worries about how she empties her bladder, and nobody turns her because of bed sores, and she doesn't get spasticity, and she doesn't need physio... And she doesn't start to twist up like this. And in the fairy tale, it doesn't sort of really matter what happens to the other people around her. But the other thing I found very useful from Henry Marsh's book is he talks about the fact that it's the family that become the collateral damage. Because whilst, as a society, we're clever enough to now to be able to keep people alive, to keep their hearts beating... We haven't begun to grapple with the philosophical, moral, legal, ethical, psychological dimensions of what happens when you have a body that is warm with pumping blood, but that isn't and won't do anything else. I don't really want to put you through this, all you nice people who've told me how much you love each other, because that's what you should be doing. But just for a second, just imagine that that happens and that that's what you're trying to grapple with. And it's really hard. Um, kind of, which is why I'm here and why I've written this book. This all happened years ago. But the reason why I've written a book is that I've come to see that the best thing for my brother would have been for his life to end that night in the road. But also, it would have been better for everyone he knew, and for me, and for my parents, had his life ended that night in the road. One of the things I now see about writing my book already, in the past year I've had really good therapy for post-traumatic stress disorder, which actually I didn't realise I had it even. Well, I was diagnosed with it when I was 19, but that was really early on. <laughs> and a load of the bad stuff hadn't even happened then. Um, I've had this really good therapy. And this therapy, finally clearing some of this post-traumatic stress disorder, I can really see now in my book and in other grief memoirs, I can just see when people actually have PTSD and they say things like, as I do in here, things like, I play this to myself again and again. And that, that is the, the, the flashbacking. And I've been doing this for years. And recently I did a, um, an interview with some very nice Dutch people and I think that because of the language being slightly different, it just helped me see it in this way. They said to me, um, tell us how you went about finding your memories. And I thought that's an interesting way to look at it. And then, of course, I thought, well, I didn't have to put any effort into finding my memories because they are there all the time, playing at the front of my head. It's all I see. 
so I feel I offer myself as a case study of what happens when you take a fairly bright, imaginative 17-year-old girl and then do that to her brother and make her witness it, make her feel um, ultimately complicit in his death, make her feel responsible. Um, and one of the wonderful things for me about writing my book is I get all these letters now from people who themselves have witnessed a long death. And sometimes it's people who've shared a similar experience, but actually, more often, it's just any kind of, any kind of long death. Because I think what happens in a long death is that you start to long for it. And that makes people feel really bad about themselves. And also, you've got to think, that is probably not what the person dying the long death would have wanted. Henry Marsh says in his book that it's really easy to do emergency brain surgery on people. He says you just drill some holes and you just let out some blood. What, of course, is much more difficult is whether or not we should be doing that in the first place. And the problem is there's no plan when it doesn't work. There's no plan. And as he says, one of the difficulties is surgeons don't really spend time with their unsuccessful outcomes. So nobody sees it. So nobody knows what it's like. And everybody imagines some sort of sleeping beauty thing. And no one wants to legislate for it because pitfalls and whatever. And it's not a vote winner. And whenever you see any news reporting about this, next time you see it, I promise you, it will all have doubt built into it along the lines of, oh, well, maybe they do know something. So let's play on the safe side. Because what do people think of when they think of the safe side? Sleeping beauty. That's what it is. They're not thinking about the horror of, of, of what a body is like when, a, when it's still alive and a brain is in it and it's deteriorating. They're not thinking of that. They're not thinking of collateral damage. They're thinking of sleeping beauty. So sleeping beauty is a very damaging myth for our society. And death, I think, death is not the worst thing. Uh, the title of my book is The Last Act of Love, and that's, the that's from the affidavit my mother wrote where she said that she thought Matthew should die and it was our last act of love to bring that about for him. Um, I would like to leave you with the slightly, I hope, cheerier thought that after all these years and all these things, I have been thinking, I think lately, that actually the last act of love for people who die and leave us is that somehow we try to learn to live well without them. Thank you very much. <laughs>